This is the Book Rat Podcast. We talk about things related to books. Often they're new. We're recording on Thursday, February 6th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. And we just had breaking news that I'm still recovering from. That we'll get oh. here in just a second. I will, maybe we'll save it for after the, the first My heart is break. racing. To talk, it's, it's all good. This week went from a kind of a wild mishmash. Like, news cycles have come and gone since we recorded mm-hmm. last time, which is wild. Um, but uh, I guess before we get into anything, let's, let's do a sponsor and we'll do follow-up and then, then the news we're excited about. Maybe the most excited two people in the world. It's, is it possible? <laughs> that of the billions of people on the planet, we are more excited than any other people at this very moment. I think it's no, possible. No, no, for this thing. Is, and is oh, there yes. someone out there more excited? Anyway, now we're no, just... This is this is a, now we're just teasing yeah, it. Yeah, okay, let's do a sponsor and we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Uh, first follow-up uh, several people thank you so much emailed to remind inform us if we didn't know already which i did that the witcher was a very popular video game before it was a netflix oh i adaptation. had no idea yeah, and i don't okay. think we talked about i know we didn't talk about the show because people mentioned which i think they were saying i think people emailing thought would um, make us less surprised about the five hundred thousand copy reprint I kind of went the other way, which is it already was a super popular video game with a book series based on it. So that actually suggests the Netflix might even be more um, of additional juice behind a particular cultural property because there were books and mm-hmm. video games that were, the video games especially was popular. I, I think one of them, maybe the original or one of the follow-ups or something is considered one of the great video games possibly of all time. I haven't played it. Um, but even so there was still untapped interest for people to read a, an adapta- a book about a thing they saw an adaptation of uh, is surprising and remarkable. And if they sell out of that print run and do more, uh, grab that bag, people that yeah. The Witcher, is what I've got to say about that. <laughs> yes. So, and then... Thank you for the update. And you, now... And now, we very, very, <laughs> very rarely talk about an announced book deal. Uh, only when there's like a big advance and it's, mm-hmm. that's notable, but just, just like 20 minutes ago at the end of a call, we were doing about, you know, regular work stuff. Um, someone posted one of the contributors and then tagged me, or I think Amanda tagged me that FSG just announced that coming October 6th, 2020, this year, this year of our Lord, 2020, 
Marilyn Robinson will be publishing the final <gasps> installment in the Gilead series and, called Jack. And the Jack. story of Jack Botton, the one we wanted. This <laughs> is what we want. Let's go. Right now, Everything let's go. Everything is coming up in our wheelhouse. Wow. Couldn't be more excited about this. Now, let's be honest. We long hoped for this. Like this specifically to be an installment yes. in the Gilead series. Mm-hmm. We, we thought have... pretty strongly there was going to be at least one other installment, but we didn't know we'd get this story. Am I, do I have our, our expectations the, that, right? That is correct. And when we did like years ago, we did a dream cast of who would play the different characters in these. And we've been like sort of arguing over it for years about who would play Jack mm-hmm. Botton. Now we're going to get the story. We can go back to that. I am so excited. I wish that we had the noise that I made when you told me. <laughs> um, I was screaming could... into my computer <laughs> as loud as I scream. Which like that very voluble um, expression of emotion is not your favorite thing. So no. for Marilyn Robinson, it's, it's a big deal that that I, came I, out. I can't think, I can't think of this is, I don't know if it's going to be true as I say it, but it feels right at this moment. I can't think of a book I would be more excited to see come across my transom. Like, I think if yeah. Harry Potter 8 was announced, like, in general, that would be, like, a huge <laughs> thing, and we're getting, like, years... But, like, for me, for me, for me yes. sitting down and reading, I mean, Toni Morrison's dead. Yep. Rest in peace. Uh, this is where I am. Uh, yeah, Th- yeah, this is... Where is I I, I'm, I'm in the same place. Like, there is not a book I will be more excited to pick up this year. So we were talking about... Maybe this decade. Ever? I mean, now now, now it's we're in our own reading mortality situation. I don't know. I'm sure other things can surprise <laughs> and delight me. Um, but Gilead came out in 2004, I think. Is that the first one? 2003, mm, somewhere around there? 2003, 2000. Yeah, I was in college. Yeah. So we're at a 15-year um, mark with these... Uh, you know, if, if you listen to the show at all, this is no surprise to you. We're thinking about something to do and anticipate, like a reread, a read along. A, a, I don't know. I feel like this 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 must be podcast commemorated somehow, both <laughs> pre and post publication. And we're Agreed. we're going to spitball some ideas. I don't know, um, but anyway. Very excited to see Jack Botton, the son mm, of the Reverend so Jonathan Ames, ready. who was the in the marketing copy marketing copy here described in a way. I mean, this is an idiom that makes sense. He's the black sheep of the family. He went off, left Gilead, and was an alcoholic. He comes home, and this is, you know, part of the story already. So it's not as I don't know where we are with spoilers, but now I can't remember. Was it in? Um, which book was it that Jack makes his return as an adult with his family? Oh, it's in Lila, isn't it? Is it in Lila? I can't. I can't. Now, now, no, it's even been more too. Well, see, Jeff, we need to read them again. Right. Have to. <laughs> um, comes home with a, uh, and this is like the twenties, right? Like it's in mm-hmm. the twenties or so, and he comes home, uh, returns to Gilead to visit his parents with a uh, black wife and um, son, and that is. Not as much, not an issue overtly, but it becomes a part of Jack's prodigal son who maybe isn't as embraced as openly <laughs> as, mm. as could be. And we long wanted, as we saw the stories of, of Lila and Glory, 
hoped that was the perspective we were wanted. Jack or his wife, frankly, and maybe we'll get some yeah. of his. I can't remember her name right now, um, but it sounds like we're going to get that Milu. And I don't know if it's going to pick up with when he left. It's going to pick up when he comes back. Maybe it'll be the whole thing. At this point, I want to know nothing else about it. Frankly, I kind of stopped reading the the blurb when I saw what it was going to be, and it is the final installment. So. This is the last one. God, we're excited about this. Give it to shoot it right into my veins, as they say on the internet. Um, I know. Eight months. We got eight months to get ready. How many times can I reread Gilead? In the next a lot. A lot. Do I make it through 2020 without a Marilyn Robinson inspired tattoo? This is where oh. we are now. Because we'll have the whole story then. Yeah, you're gonna have a lot to, of latent kinetic from. excitement to do something with and sometimes people head to the tattoo parlor when they don't know what else to do mm-hmm. with that kind of anxiety or emotions. So. Or when you just want to hold on to something from a book you love forever. Forever. Oh boy. Wow. I could not be happier. I'm probably gonna have to like go see her on tour somewhere and stand very awkwardly while she signs my book and do the thing I did to Toni Morrison of like, I thank you and then scurry off because well, I can't handle as it. As a narcissistic content creator, <laughs> I would just, as you guys have heard, this was released yesterday as we're recording, I brought back the Reading Lives format for Gabriel Bump. Oh boy. And now I have a PR reason to email FSG. <laughs> um, but Jeff, you'll... D- you, you'll just like die on the spot if you get to I'm made of sterner Robinson. stuff than that. Not much. <laughs> Not much sterner. I don't really have a spine, but there's cartilage there. It could hold up. Uh, I've been oh. holding this card for a while. And if you interview Marilyn Robinson for Reading Lives, I will insist on being on the phone. <laughs> we can discuss terms <laughs> at some offline time. I'll just be the producer. Okay. It's fine. Fair. We'll figure it fair, out. Fair, but fair, fair. Let's do, I mean, can we just stop? Like, is there any other news I to talk know. about? I don't know. Just four ad reads and we're done after that. <laughs> there is actually a lot of interesting yeah. news A lot to of get things to. did happen this week. Well, shoot us a, if you're excited, podcast at bookriot.com. Um, also, if you've got ideas for how we should cover this, I, I'd love to know. Would would people out there be interested in, not in this feed, maybe, maybe we do a, remember when we did... Um, Thinking fast and slow. What if we did something mm-hmm. like that? Kind of off the books to some degree. Oh. I wonder if that'd mm-hmm. be interesting. I don't know. Um, I certainly will be rereading them, so I might as well make podcast noises about them at some point. Put them into an <laughs> audio input device of some sort. Uh, seems like a wasted opportunity. Uh, let's 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 go sponsor a break and then come back and come back from uh, this peak on which we find ourselves. Okay. Um, what a flex by the strand here. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, this we talked about book culture. I don't remember if we we'd talked about the kind of denouement of the book culture plead for help story, which came out a couple weeks ago. Do you remember, Rebecca? Yeah, I don't think we got to it. It was in one of those weeks that just had so much news, and we didn't get to the update. Yeah, basically, all of the community outreach support that the owner of book Cor- culture did. And it was considerable, apparently. They paid off months' worth of back rent, but they were still months behind. Has now led book culture to have to really actually finally close their Columbus Circle space, because it turns out landlords like to get paid. Um, I know that's (laughs) weird. And in a flex of, you need to know how to run an independent bookstore in New York? Well, the Strand is hermit-crabbing their way up to, and they're going to take over that Columbus Circle space. And say what you will about The Strand, and The Strand is a business that has been in business in New York 
for a long time. And I think it's fair to say they run their bookstore like a real business. And sometimes that doesn't always make people happy. Uh, they've had some union trouble over time. And I don't know if that's the cost of doing business in New York, an expensive city, and keeping your cost down. I don't know. But what The Strand is not going to do is write half-baked Facebook posts asking for handouts from the community um, for good or ill. But that maybe is the kind of thing you have to do to run a bookstore. So I, I, I don't. is there anything else to take from this story than the book culture did it wrong and The Strand can do it right? Or what do you think? Yeah, I think that the top line note is like New York is now not down a bookstore. You know? Right. There you go. Right. Yep. 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 <laughs> Uh, and what happens in the space, like, I don't know what things are like for a bookstore in Columbus Circle, or if there's demand for a, a bookstore to be successful there or not. But I think that you're right that the Strand has a better shot at making that work, because we've already seen them make it work mm -hmm. to like a, a very high level of success um, at the flagship store. So yep. interesting to see that happening. Um, I'm delighted by the hermit crab. <laughs> well, I guess I'd say this, if the Strand can't make it work there then no one else should try. Maybe that's you yeah, know, I think one that's, of the things fair. to say. I think they will probably succeed. The Upper West Side, as I said on one of the previous shows, should have a great bookstore, a big one, a great big mm -hmm. bookstore. And The Strand is a great big bookstore, and they've, won, they've probably more, again, this is a little bit of insider New York stuff, but there's probably more people that are a um, walk away on the Upper West Side that are high value customers than there are now at Union Square as that as Union Square and down there has become more and more expensive. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if it's actually the if Strand could pick one location, would they actually pick the Upper West Side these days? Um, I'm not sure the Strand itself is such a flagship tourist, just writ large book nerd destination that people will make the trip there. But I bet there's a lot of people that like to buy books on the Upper West Side that would not just take the train down to the Strand to pick up um, their copy of Jack by Marilyn Robinson <laughs> on October 6th. <laughs> oh, uh -huh. this, is this is only tangentially related. Can we do five minutes of tangent? Of course. So speaking of buying things full price, a walk away, um, mm -hmm. I, I did a review copy of uh, Everywhere You Don't Belong, the bump, Gabriel bump, yeah. uh, that I really liked and one of the reasons we did the winter spring preview and then I went up reading Eliza, I thought the book was interesting and he's, a, he's an interesting guy. But I wanted a hard copy and I was like, okay, I've already done this. I'm just going to get it off Amazon because it's a 20, $25.99 hardcover and at 40% off, it saves me 10 bucks, right? Okay, mm -hmm. there, there, I don't, whatever. That's, that's what I was going to do. I go on Amazon on sale date yesterday the list price was only 5% cheaper than the, the cover price. And so I didn't huh. buy it. And I'm going to walk to Powell's today and pick one up for a dollar more. Excellent. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that is I'm so acculturated. And I think I brought this up on Slack with the contributors or maybe just on the company Slack um, that I've seen this, noticed this more and more that the front list discounting on hardcover, especially the sort of the mid list fiction, no, no shade to the mid list offers out there. I love you. But that seems to have gone away. Like you're seeing 5%, 10% discounts, not mm -hmm. the 20 30 40% discounts. Now, you still see those on the book I don't want to talk about anymore. That was the, the number one hardcover fiction book oh, last yeah. year. Uh -huh. uh, or even um, Such a Fun Age, which next week you're going to hear me and Vanessa and Sharifa do a whole bonus, one of these extra episodes about Such a Fun Age by um, Kylie Reed, which is still continuing to sell. That book is 40% off. But this kind of book... 
isn't, which I find interesting and I think is a relatively recent development. And I don't know if there's anything to read into that or it's one data point, but I have noticed several of them. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, too. And my best guess about it is Amazon used books as a loss leader for a long time and got customers acculturated, as you were just saying, accustomed to, I go to Amazon to get things for cheap, and they are cheap. And now you can have Prime and also get discounts on other stuff because you're not just picking up your book, you're picking up like the diapers and the dog food and whatever else. And now that customers are accustomed to it, and they're buying many other things. I think perhaps the deep discounts on books are not as essential to the business model would be my guess. Um, So Amazon's finding some ways to make more money off of those things. There's sort of a and three card Monte is rigged, so it's the wrong metaphor. But if the ideas was using books as a loss leader to get people acclimated to Amazon is the place I buy books because it's cheap. And over time, that just becomes Amazon is the place I go to buy yeah. books. They no longer mm-hmm. have to be as cheap. Again, there was still a discount and I'm a prime member, so I get the shipping if I wouldn't get otherwise. But and also, I've also I've often wondered what's my bear like what is, where's my morality tax kick in like how much mm-hmm. of a morality tax am I willing to mm-hmm. pay, and saving ten twelve dollars on a hardcover delivered to my door, tough for me not to choose that. But apparently, and it just happened. I didn't think it. I was like, I'm just going to buy that at Pals. I didn't think it. I was like, that's worth the walk. I get to go there, spend a few minutes. I pay two and a half dollars extra. That's where I am. So in my classification of what kind of a weak willed book buyer I am. <laughs> it's somewhere between 10 and $2 is my Interesting. Line. Is that, that is what do you think about that? Diagnose me, Rebecca. Is that is that reasonable? <laughs> well, I'm also thinking about like, you're, okay, so for an extra $2, you get to take a walk right. and go outside, which is nice. And you get to go hang out in Powell's, yeah. which is also it Gives me a reason nice. to go. I get to support them. Right. Yeah. That it's, it's worth it there. I haven't done that exact math for myself i do tend like i'm i'm buying many fewer books than i Mm. used to my galley yeah my galley situation is largely responsible for that um and having access to digital galleys like i'm on a mission to have less paper in my house Mm. just in general um but when i'm buying a book that i want to like hold in my hands i'm i'm doing a better job about just ordering from an indie i put one of my favorite indies into the um favorites on my phone <laughs> and that makes it easier but i haven't thought about like what where is my morality tax i'll have to consider and, and it would be I'll, different I'll if and that. don't be creepy if the yeah. house here in southeast portland weren't a five minute walk and kind of yeah. within my walking distance like if i had to yeah. get in my car and drive to mm-hmm. the downtown one or a different indie but like the the constellations uh, the, my, the constellation of laziness that comprises me worked out just in such a way that this is going to, my purchase will happen over there versus online. I'd be curious to see if other people out there, let's know podcast at bookwright.com. Some people say, I don't know what your email address is, and we say it three times. But anyway, um, you know, have, have you guys found this to be the case at all? Am I, is my data sample small and actually this always been this way? I'm not sure, but this is the first time that I really, like, I did not add to cart because I was like, you know what, I'll pay a couple extra bucks and I get to go to Pals and make a difference there. So that's a long way of saying bookstores and books and prices are things in the world. Um, And we're not going to talk about ebook pricing today. (laughs) Rebecca, I'm having such a nice time. (laughs) I know. We don't want to harsh our Marilyn Robinson mellow here. I didn't go check to see what the Barnes & Noble price was, I have to say, because I wonder... 
maybe there's a, I can do a little research here about some of this stuff and, and see where we are. Um, but it also reminded me that I need to look at it, and I don't know if anyone else there, again, emails if you have. We know, we've talked about it on the show before, but bookshop.org launched um, mm. last week in beta, I guess. And there are some things we didn't know about it now that we know. And they said some things about what they need to be profitable or to return money to stores that I think um, none of it's bad necessarily. I, I don't feel differently about it, but it's, the, it's been fleshed out what the model looks like. And I think I want to go through the, the, the process of trying to buy something from a bookstore that I like and see how it goes. So maybe a um, after the uh, post-mortem on that process. All right. Tell me about this Publishers Weekly piece. I don't want to talk about this too much more, but this is really interesting, and I'm glad this piece exists. Yeah, so Publishers Weekly did a also kind of a postmortem about what's been going on with American Dirt and following up the controversy and sort of summing up what had happened, but then in an attempt to give a like, is this a, I think they're really trying to get to like, does this represent a problem about the makeup of publishing? And how did the book get published? And, you know, sort of all, all of those things. So the who wrote this piece, um, Rachel Deal and Claire Kirch um, reported this piece together, and they tried to get all of the editors who bid on American Dirt in the initial um, acquisition bidding war to comment on it. Um, not all of them did comment on it. They got comment from a bunch of other people. And as you might expect, this sort of runs the gamut. Like everyone is trying to be, or most people are trying to be like pretty diplomatic about this book um, has raised interesting questions and conversations and those are essential and they should continue. Um, an agent, I think the most interesting thing in the piece to me is that an agent who went on the record, but anonymously um, said that they think that people are begrudging Janine Cummins the money. And later on that same agent um referred to as a he, so we know something there, says, it, quote, it used to be that the market spoke for a book. What's happening with American Dirt, he added, has people in the industry worried that a book can get, quote, banned before it's had a chance to even seep into the culture. And I've been thinking about that since this piece came out, because this is what it looks like when the market speaks for a book. Um, also, that's not what banned means. So please... <laughs> Like, re if I have any legacy in my life in publishing, it will be that publishing people learn what censorship and banning is and is not. <laughs> like and no and use it responsibly, right? Like, this right. matters. This does matter yeah. because people do try to get books That's banned. Right. And this is not one of those, this is not one of those times. But people reading a book or reading about the origin of a book or reading about how the author talks about a book or looking at the marketing of a book and the way that a publisher is trying to sell it and having a response to that that is critical and then deciding not to buy the book and to publicly share their criticisms of the book in hopes that other people will not put their money behind it. Like This is the market working. Yeah. It's just that the market has a lot of voices that the market didn't used to have. And like that quote in itself, I think is very telling that folks who are upset about the existence of a controversy around American dirt do not understand that like that this is the world now that readers have like readers of all stripes and all backgrounds and identities have voices they have communities and ways of connecting to each other a lot of this has to do with the internet and it's one of the beautiful things the internet has given us and people can band together to share this kind of criticism and then to try to, you know, have something be less popular. It happens 
all the time. Like publishing's not special that it's happening to books. This is what people in the world do when they say like, oh, I don't go to that restaurant because the owner is a jerk or whatever. Like th- it's the same thing. Um, that's This is how the market speaks for itself or it's one of the ways that the market is speaking for itself. And the thing that happened with American Dirt is that people who are vocal and who have power to influence the market used it. Mm-hmm. So... Well, and here's the thing. The book sold so far. Right. 40,000 yeah. copies. I don't know how that's going to... I don't know what the shape of that sales curve is going to be over time, but it also was a lot to make and publicity and the marketing that's all gone behind. It will be expensive. But here's the thing. What this person is really saying is we want to sell the book and have people mm-hmm. who buy it, buy it or not, and everyone else shut up about it. And that's yeah. tough nuggies. That's not how we think we're going to do things anymore. For better. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes that's... Sometimes it can be toxic and problematic in a variety of ways, and we've talked about those before. Mm -hmm. But in this particular one, if you just wanted to sell a book and you didn't care about the heat, you would take the heat. But they actually do care about the heat. That's the thing that's in what talks to the next story a little bit, but... Yeah, 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 that this is tied into the next story, to several of the next stories, too, is that publishing, like, wants to tell the story about itself that what what we do is noble that yeah, making that go. that making books is noble and that making books matters and that art matters and that the stories we tell matter and if that's true and i think that there is a lot of truth in there i like obviously we do what we do for a living we believe that books are very important and very powerful if that's true you have to care about what the story is and about what the impact is and publishers can't just like decide that this is the book we want to have be famous and have it be famous if the content is hurtful um, or it does not resonate with readers. Like there's sort of a perpetual tension between the books that publishing wants to sell readers and the books that readers want to care about on their own. And for as long as the system exists that in the way that it does, where publishers give bananas-sized advances to some books and then are hugely incentivized to market the crap out of them so they can sell them and make good on those advances, that tension will continue to exist where publishers like, this is the thing that we want to put forward that we want to sell a million copies of, so we're going to spend a million dollars on it. And they get very upset when those things are not received in the same way. And they're uh, publishing in general, I think does not respond to that very gracefully. Like one of the, one of the things that I took away from uh, the flat iron statement about American dirt and from the way that the publisher is continuing to talk about it is like, they're just sort of reiterating, well, here's what we hoped to do with this book. Yeah. And we hope, th- like, we had good intentions. And so we hope that's enough. And the answer has been, like, your intentions don't matter. You need to look at the impact. And the impact is harmful. So do something about that. And maybe don't make the same mistake again. But this is the market at work in the same way that, like, booksellers taking books by guys who got me too'd off of their shelves or people deciding not to go buy a Juno Diaz novel because of a story that came out about him. Like that is also the market working. Mm. This, this is part of it. It's not a sign that the system is broken. This is the system. Publishing is just having to face the fact that a lot of people have power and influence in the system who have not historically had that. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's right if you do something and there's a, uh, contingent of people in the world that are mad about it. And sometimes if you're sticking by your principles, you tell them to stick it and you weather out the yeah. storm. Mm-hmm. I think though, you got you to gotta be careful that you're actually sticking up for a principle and not for your bottom line, right? That's that's where this yes. comes in. It's like, I don't think actually Macmillan or Publishing 
wants to be sticking up for this book in this way with these people saying these things about them. I think they ultimately, they actually don't want this, right? Like, this is mm-hmm. not something they wanted. Their preference would have been to publish the book and have everyone buy it and everyone love it. But that's not what happened. And that's sometimes yeah, what's and going on. There's also a time to just shut up about it yeah, then. Right. Like, I just, I think that we're in that place where if you can't say we made a mistake in publishing this book, mm-hmm. then stop exp- like stop re-explaining why you published it in hopes that like maybe people will come around. Yeah. Like that that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. The thing where people are like, oh, well, M- Macmillan had good intentions. I guess it's fine is not going to happen. So if you can't fall on the sword and I understand they can't fall on the sword for corporate bottom line based reasons, just don't keep talking. You don't have to keep talking. Yeah. And, and this next story, I mean, I haven't talked to any, I mean, I haven't seen how this has been um, received anywhere else, but like Macmillan and representatives of, I, I think kind of an ad hoc group called Dignitad Literaria, um, who are basically a coalition of Latinx members of literary publishing and active communities. This is verbatim mm-hmm. from Publishers Weekly, uh, met with people from Macmillan, um, some people from Oprah apparently listened in on the phone. Macmillan's public relations person was there. And it sounds to me like it was a generative discussion. And the the tangible outcome is that there are going to be 11 cities across the country where publishers are going to meet to address this crisis in Latino publishing. And the community, uh, Latinx uh, community is inspired and it sounds like publishers are motivated if only from self-preservation but i actually do think it does extend Mm -hmm. somewhat beyond self-preservation here um and i thought i think this is worth reading writ large i thought um miriam gurba's statement was was really interesting just read a couple of moments of it here overall the meeting Mm -hmm. went very well you could smell the discomfort of some folks in the room but that was important Mm -hmm. um I'll lean on cliche and say that I'm cautiously optimistic. I hope Macmillan follows through with the initiative we suggested, one of which will bring systemic changes to publishing, demolishing the walls that keep POC folks out. So I think maybe slower than you would like, maybe causing a lot more anguish, certainly, than was hoped for. But maybe there's some a bud of a thing here that might yeah. lean to something. I'm hopeful about this also, and I'll take Miriam's cautiously optimistic yeah. language that um, part of this is an agreement for Macmillan to write an action plan within 90 days and to continue meeting with representatives from the movement in another 30 days. And an, an action plan is a great thing. And this is this goes to address the systemic problems that um, that we and that a lot of people have been talking about, that the, the problem is not excuse me, the problem is not American dirt. The problem is what American dirt indicates and represents about what's going on in publishing and that that's a huge lack of diversity and of who is sitting at the table and in the rooms where these decisions are made. And a plan with um, consultation and advice from members of the community who know what they are talking about the way these folks do that could really change things. Like it may be slower than we want it to be, but this has the potential to make a systemic difference. And that's really what's going to have to happen for 
things to get better. So I'm heartened by this and glad that like, I wish that Macmillan had been like, we screwed up with American dirt, we're not going to spend any more money on it. And we will take this meeting (laughs) with you and and have this initiative. Um, But this is a kind of tacit admission that they care about this. And I think that um, and that they are aware of and troubled by um, the mistakes that they've made. I believe that to be genuine. Um, uh, well, okay, I guess we can post-mortem this because it was never even, it was never even mortem. (laughs) Speaking of decisions that happen in rooms that are too white. So (laughs) this is a medium piece that was published February 4th. So that Barnes & Noble had announced that day or the day before uh, its partnership with PRH to sell quote-unquote diverse editions of a slate of classic novels to celebrate Black History Month. Basically, it was taking public domain works and having cover art where the main characters were people of color. And I'm going to list the, the the books, and I think your growing sense of your screen crawling might be the thing that, you know, the, Romeo and Juliet, Emma, Wizard of Oz, Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers, Treasure Island, Frankenstein, Peter Pan, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Secret Garden, Moby Dick, and Alice in Wonderland. Um, and basically what happened is these specially commissioned covers were make taking a white main character and drawing them as black and that's it. That was it. So it's even weirder than that. There's a New York Times piece on the follow-up mm. that says that the way this happened was Barnes & Noble, like Bar- Barnes & Noble in partnership with PRH, used artificial intelligence to look through a hundred books that it said made no reference to the race of their characters. And then the artist created these covers to reimagine the characters as people of color. So sort of like built into that is this assumption that like, the character's race isn't mentioned in Emma. So we could reimagine. <laughs> like, it's even worse this way. Like, uh, Alice I mean, I in Wonderland. Laugh, that's so dumb. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland doesn't mention that Alice is white. So it's up for debate about what Lewis Carroll intended her race to be. And certainly her race doesn't impact the story at all. Like, this is so, like, talk about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Are (laughs) these even good intentions or is this a money grab? I'm not even sure this is well-intentioned, honestly. I think that it is, but it's so poorly informed and just wrong-headed. Like, The Wizard of Oz... Okay, Dorothy is in Kansas. Have you been to Kansas? Like, you don't have to mention that Dorothy is white because the assumption, the very safe assumption is that that character on a farm at that time in that place would be white in the same way that the assumption that Emma is white is totally fair well it's like, like they're just completely missing the point that they, of right that they right that they, stories for marginalized right, people yes, is that the right, context like, and experience matters exactly exactly that yeah. like the characters in these classic books their race is not mentioned because it's a given right. default that their race is white and that the way to address diversity is not put 
I think literary blackface is the perfect term yep. for it. I don't know who was the first person um, to make the, to use that in reference to that, but that's exactly mm-hmm. what it is. Like giving, making Emma black, making Dorothy black does not honor people of color. It doesn't go. To, it doesn't go any distance to solve any sort of diversity problem or representation problem. Because what representation is about is actually telling the stories of people of color, actually creating diversity in the books that are published and the stories that are told and the communities that are represented like making dr frankenstein a person of color does nothing to does nothing for the movement it does nothing for progress it does nothing for diversity and the fact that like people relatively high up i would assume at both barnes and noble and penguin random house had i would also assume multiple meetings and lots of money was spent to make this happen and thought that it was a good idea, I think points right back to what we were talking about with American Dirt of these rooms are very, very white. Mm. And rooms in which many people of color were present and had voice and influence, like this would not occur. And it didn't occur. It's not going to occur. It's over. Right. In short, I mean, within 24 hours, maybe 36 hours, they said, you know, we're not going to do this and we're pulling them out of there. And here's the thing. The, the backlash to this was swift and... I mean, I think obviously right that this is these are not things that should be in the world and they pull them. Again, they don't have giant advances or publicity campaigns, so they can pull them. And that's it was so easy to do, makes it so easy to pull. And I guess I'm going to say this about both this and the, the, the American Dirt thing is in both cases, the publishing company got popped in the mouth. And yeah. maybe that's what needs to happen. I mean, maybe you need mm-hmm. to get popped in the mouth a little bit because... These good intentions, these soft good intentions aren't cut in the mustard. And a couple of pops in the mouth, you know, pain is a good teacher. And it seems to me there's some real pain being Mm -hmm. experienced and it's deserved in these situations. I hope it becomes like the kind of pain that's useful, an instrument of, of evolution and change. But uh, yeah, I think, I think that's true here that, this is we're seeing a bunch of these things happen at the same time with the yeah. Barnes and Noble with the with the diverse editions and then with American Dirt and if you're working in a publisher like you need to be looking at the books on your list right now mm-hmm. and at the stuff you're considering acquiring like anything that's in the pipeline and think not just about your intentions but about how it's going to come out and about the impact and like there's still time to not be the next one of these yep. <laughs> like there there will be a next one mm-hmm. unfortunately i believe that to, that that will continue to be true for a while but it can like it can be prevented these can be cautionary tales <laughs> yeah, <right>. yeah. <laughs> you know and and the barnes and noble statement not for nothing also reiterated what its intentions were like everyone knows what you're trying to do here just do better like amanda and i picked up a phrase i wish i could remember where we picked it up but um in reference to like people who just talk about what they were trying to do and we have started saying you know get better or get quiet Mm. and i think that that's what needs to happen here like publishing just get better like it's also not hard to figure out how to get better in this way just get better and stop talking about what your good intentions were let's do one more sponsor (laughs) and do a hero of the week and we're done i think yeah 
All right, Rebecca, take us home with the hero. Of the week. All right, this hero of the week. This is a cool one. Um, an author named Alasia Jordan. You can find it at alasiajordan.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. Has created a tool called the Bookshelf that is a book recommending like sorting hat, basically, to help you find stories created by marginalized and up underrepresented authors. So you go to the website. It's alasiajordan.com slash the hyphen bookshelf. Again, link is in the show notes, and you get to click on you select an age category, a genre, you can select a secondary genre, you can even drill down by the publication year or like, if you know the color of the cover, like you're Mm. like, what was that blue book from 2005, you can sort by the color, you can even um, do a bunch of different sortings, then you click, and it will tell you so like right now I'm going to look for a young adult, contemporary, um, with a secondary genre of fantasy and i'm getting a blade so black by ll mckinney Mm. um it's recommending me a couple of uh, ll mckinney's books oh a brief history of seven killings by marlon james which is not young adult but is excellent um all kinds of cool stuff so if you are looking to read and support um writers from marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds like this is a great way to discover books specifically about that Um, more than 325 fiction and nonfiction titles in there so far so it's also curated you're not going to be like going through the giant rabbit hole of goodreads Um, but i was really happy especially this week (laughs) to see this come across my desk you can also subscribe um, and support uh, the work that's happening there if you want to there's some info about how to do that so May your efforts succeed, Alasia Jordan. As always, you can find a link there to this if you want to use it. Be good reader services things for librarians and other people yeah. out there that keep. Um, I know librarians and teachers keep listen uh, folders full of tools like this. This will be a great one to add. But you can find links to this and all the other stories we talked about today. Bookriot.com. Listen, just navigate down to the podcast, and you can see the episodes there. Um, I guess that's it for today. The only thing is. On a scale of 11 to 12, <laughs> we'd like to know how excited you are for Jack by the one, the only Marilyn Robinson. Rebecca, I'll talk to you uh, uh, soon. Oh, I think I mentioned this before, but coming on Wednesday, if you're thinking about reading it or have read it or just would like to know a few days up, Sharifa and Vanessa and I are doing did a whole hour recorded yesterday on Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, which I think is the first It book of the year, in a good way, mm-hmm. in a good way, yeah. the It book, um, even though it was frustratingly published last year, uh, which we actually didn't get into. We I think we said at the top, well, we'll talk about that later, and we got so wrapped mm. up. And actually oh, yeah, we we talked about it um, on the oh, winter yeah. preview episode. No, no, on yeah. this pod we did, but with oh, yeah, the discussion, yeah. I thought we'd come back to mm, it. But, okay. Um, I, I'll promise you this. If you start read such a young age, give yourself runway to finish it within a day or two because yep. there is a momentum thing that happens between part two and part three that you will not want to be able to put down. So you can start it tonight and be done by Wednesday. <laughs> I guarantee that'll be true. I second that emotion. I read it in one sitting yeah. over the holidays. Yeah, I read it in one and one in a, well, I guess any more than one is two sittings, but one long sitting <laughs> and one shorter sitting. <laughs> All right, Brad, I'll talk to you later. Have a good one. 